You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I would like to begin by making a beeline right to the scriptures themselves. This will be our third and final message devoted to the prayer found here in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Today also marks the end of Paul's introductory remarks to this amazing little letter. Some of you thought we would never get here, but this is the end of the beginning of Philippians. So to stir us up by way of reminder and establish the context for our passage, we'll begin at the very beginning of this opening section. So please follow along as I read, starting in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you making all, or for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, it buried the city of Pompeii in volcanic ash and pumice, These created a sort of natural mold, and it is one of the most popular tourist sites in Italy today. It creates a unique snapshot of Roman life, and it preserved the final minutes of that terrible catastrophe. Impressions of the city's citizens have been found in various positions all over the ruins. Some have been discovered in deep vaults as if they were trying to run away for safety. Others have been found with their spouse, embracing each other for the last time before the end. But where do you think they found the Roman sentinel? Where do you think they would have found him amidst all of the chaos, all of the confusion, and all of the death? Excavators found him standing at the city gate, right where his captain had left him, his hand still grasping the weapon, while the earth shook beneath him, while the floods of ash overwhelmed him. He stood his ground and he stayed at his post until they found him there a thousand years later. There's a word for that, a word that we don't hear very often today, but we should. It's the word loyalty. It is this idea of faithful allegiance, of steadfast devotion to something or someone other than ourselves. That kind of commitment manifests itself in our decisions, in the decisions that we make and the way that we act, Every day. And in a way, it can summarize today's text with just that one word, loyalty. So the title of this morning's message is The Right Kind of Loyalty. Because as Paul prays for the Philippians, he isn't satisfied with one sided or even two dimensional prayers. He doesn't want the heart without the head or the hand without the heart, he wants the whole package. He wants to see them grow both inwardly and outwardly. He wants to see the whole man transformed and changed. Paul knows that God doesn't save sinners to see them live their life and continue on from day to day unaffected. He expects more than a changed mind. He expects a changed character and a changed life. Two weeks ago, we looked at the right kind of love because that's how this prayer begins. And last week, we looked at the right kind of life because the right kind of love produces the right kind of life. Today, as we conclude this prayer, we find ourselves at the end of the line. Like a cascading river, each phrase falls from one truth to the next until we arrive at our final destination, and that is a transformed life. 
transformed in our attitude, in our affections, in our actions. With it all coming down and and rising up to the glory and the praise of God. We have a lot to cover this morning, so we won't spend too much time in review. As you know, this prayer has five requests. We have studied the first two and a half petitions. Today, I want to finish out the third request, as well as the remaining two. So I will remind you that Paul begins this prayer for the Philippians with a request to abound in love. That's his first request, to abound in love. Look at verse nine. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. Paul makes it clear from the very beginning that the primary ingredient, the catalyst for everything that he is about to mention here in this prayer, it all begins with love. Everything else is gonna follow and flow from that. And that love must grow or abound to a point where it spills over and it creates this wonderful mess in their inner life. He wants them to excel in love for God and others until they they burst out, until until they go beyond their current capacity to love. He wants them to grow. He wants them to drown in their own love. He doesn't say that they are without love. He says that they need more of it. They just need more love. He says, you have love. Now I want you to have even more. And not just a little. I want you to have more and more. I want you to abound, and then I want you to abound even more. And not just some wishy-washy, sentimental sort of love either, but a love combined with knowledge and all discernment. In other words, this love knows the truth, And it also knows how to apply the truth. And that is so important. We cannot live with an ignorant love. We cannot be satisfied to have a love that that doesn't know and doesn't understand the ways or the things of God and then how to apply those things in everyday situations. Sort of love is worthless. We must have this kind of love that is described here within the text. There's nothing shallow about this love. It is excessive, it is educated, and it is enlightened. That's the right kind of love. And Paul's desire is for the Philippians to abound more and more and more in this love. Request number two, Paul prays for them to approve the best. Approve the best. Look at verse 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent. The implication being that the Christian should test everything before determining between that which is good, better, or best. As much as a a call to, to choose the right thing over the wrong thing is important, and it most certainly is, that is not what Paul is describing here in the text, and that's not what he's encouraging them to do, and that's not what he's praying for for them. Instead, he's praying that they would be able to choose not between that which is right or wrong, but that which is better and best as opposed to that which is good. That's what he wants for them. It's one thing to say this is right or wrong. It's another thing to say, here are two good options, but which one is better? Which one is the best? As we grow in Christ with knowledgeable and discerning love, we are expected, loved ones, to make better choices. We are expected to tell the difference between things that are superior and things that are excellent and things that are just okay. We should be able to spot the difference. We shouldn't settle for spiritual baby food when steak is on the table. And yet that is exactly what many Bible-believing Christians do. And more often than not, it's, it's not because they're stupid. Many intelligent believers, many mature believers in many senses of the word... They, they, they just lack this discernment. They lack this knowledge. And it's not, because, it's not because they are somehow deficient in and of themselves. They just don't know. You, just, you don't know what you don't know. And they don't have what, what's needed to be able to tell the difference. It all starts with love. The greatest of all actions and virtues, along with experiential knowledge and all discernment. If you are low on love, ignorant, and clueless then it should be no wonder that you can't tell the difference between good, better, and best. To you, it's all good. It's all worthy. So long as it's called Christian, you can relax and enjoy the ride. Sadly, churches are full of folks who are either indifferent or don't know any better. You just, you can't know. 
You can't know what God's best looks like if you haven't already seen it in his word. Beloved, this world is dark, but God's word is the flashlight. Apart from scripture, we are blind at worst and ignorant at best. The cure for ignorance is knowledge, and with knowledge comes understanding, and with understanding comes wisdom. But it all starts with knowing the truth and loving the truth. That's the second request, for them to abound in love, but for them to also approve the best, for them to know what is better when given a choice. Number three, Paul prays for the Philippians to act with integrity, act with integrity. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Last week, we looked at purity and how this word literally means to be judged or tested by the light of the sun. How in the ancient world, fine pottery would be held up to the light. And if there were any cracks that have been hidden or or covered over with wax, they would become visible. And that the true value of the piece would become clear as they would be tested in the light of the sun. And as a result, the character of the dealer would then be revealed as well, whether they were an honest dealer or a dishonest dealer. In the same way, Paul is saying that our lives should be wax-free and complete. We shouldn't cover over the cracks in our lives or, or, or try to build a facade to present ourselves as something that we, we aren't, aren't really, that, that doesn't actually reflect who we are or what we believe or, or, or what, what, what our, our true position or, or, or standing on things might be. Instead, we, we create this mask. And again, the Bible calls that hypocrisy. We don't allow these cracks to divide our lives into convenient little compartments. We don't have our Christian friends over here and, and our real friends over there. We don't believe one thing on Sunday and then act another way on Monday. We, we don't wear one face at church and another face at work. That's not what the Lord wants for his church. He doesn't encourage or promote hypocrisy within the Bible. Instead, our prayer should be that when the day of Christ comes and we stand before the Lord, our hope should be that on that day, he will hold us up to the light and find us pure, find us whole, without cracks, that when tested, it would become clear that we are who we say that we are. And it is so important for us to be who we claim to be and for God to affirm on that day that we are exactly who he knows us to be. And that brings us to the second part of this request for integrity, and that is blamelessness, blamelessness. This word isn't typical for Paul's vocabulary. I mentioned last week that it's a positive word with a negative prefix. The positive root literally means to stumble, with the negative prefix ah meaning not in front of it. This positive-negative combination appears only three times in the New Testament. The root to stumble is found all throughout the Bible, though. And sometimes in the New Testament, it is used to describe an actual falling or stumbling physically in a path. But more often than not, it is used metaphorically to describe someone's falling into sin. It paints this image of someone walking down a path. Because in the ancient world, most traveling had to be done by foot. Pathways needed to be cut out and cleared of obstacles that could be potentially dangerous. They could cause damage or trip somebody up along the way. Even so, they didn't have flashlights or high beams at the time. They didn't have earth-moving equipment like we do today. And so often, traveling down pathways, especially at night, was incredibly dangerous. There was always this concern of stumbling, of falling, of losing your way, possibly being hurt. Throughout scripture, the believer is described as being on a path that God himself has cleared. So long as the child of God obeys God's commands, he remains on God's sanctifying pathway. That path is described as straight and the way of the righteous. It is when the believer fails to obey that he stumbles from the path. You see, we live in a fallen world full of dangers and obstacles that are just waiting to trip us up. Satan, the world, and flesh, they have one goal in mind. They love to see us fall. They are just waiting for us to make a mistake. They want to see us stumble from God's path, from God's commands. Hosea 14.9 puts it very well. He says, whoever is wise, 
Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways, literally the paths of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Stumbling or falling into sin creates a striking picture of disobedience for those of us who are on God's path. When it comes to not stumbling, as we see here in the text, this word blamelessness, this word is used in two different ways throughout the Bible. Here we, it, it refers either to someone who doesn't stumble themselves or someone who doesn't cause others to stumble. And those are the two main primary ways that this, this word is used or employed throughout the text. And given the comprehensive and superlative context of the request as it's found in this prayer, I believe that Paul has both ways in mind as he writes this. Much like how earlier on he doesn't provide an object for his love, he doesn't say I want your love for others or your love for Christ or your love for God's word or anything specific to abound, instead he just says I want your love to abound because that encompasses it all, that encompasses everything. In a similar way, I believe that's what he's doing here with blamelessness and that he's saying I don't want you to stumble but I also don't want you to cause others to stumble as well. He wants them to obey the scriptures, to walk in God's path, to be like a good soldier and remain loyal for the day of Christ. The question then becomes how? How do you keep yourself from stumbling, let alone other stumbling believers? How do you prevent them from stumbling? Well, I wanna give you a few biblical guardrails to help avoid tripping hazards along the way. First of all, If you want to keep from stumbling, you can pray for protection. Pray for protection. That's what Paul is doing here for the Philippians. He's not hoping for the best. He's praying for them to be blameless. If anyone can keep us from stumbling, it is the God of the universe. If anyone can protect us from dangers, threats, and snares, it is the God that we pray to. In Psalm 5, David prayed, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. If you want to keep from stumbling into sin, pray for protection. Secondly, deal with sin. Deal with sin. Let's flip over to Matthew 18. Just for a moment. Matthew 18. Here we have one of the most shocking and memorable statements of our Lord in Matthew 18, beginning in verse eight. Look at what he says here. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. At first glance, it might appear as though Jesus wants us to cut off our hands or gouge out our eyeballs. But that is not what Jesus is after. He's not out for blood. He's after your heart. He's saying, when it comes to sin, you have to take radical steps to deal with it. You can't be okay Being okay with sin is bad, but you have to actually go out of your way to take radical steps to handle it, to put it to death, to get rid of it, to cut it off and to cast it out, out of your life. That's what he's saying here. Whatever the source, if something causes you to sin, you have to get rid of it. If that means throwing away the TV, unplugging the internet, or walking away from an old friendship, then do it. If your smartphone causes you to stumble, cut it off. If going left takes you into sin, what do you think God wants you to do? He wants you to go right and not look back. Jesus is saying, do whatever you have to do, no matter how drastic or extreme it might be. You have to do that thing to deal with your sin. Now again, it's unfortunate, but in history, believe it or not, You can read of people who have actually done this, who have cut off their hands and gouged out their eyeballs, taking it very literally in that sense, only to discover later in life that it wasn't about the action, 
Jesus is after the heart. He's after the heart. And you have to be willing to abandon everything else that this world has. Everything else that could possibly take first seat or be more important in your heart and in your life. Anything that would cause you to stumble from God's path, you need to get rid of that thing. Because the wages of sin is always what? Death. Always death. It sounds appealing. It sounds attractive. I mean, sin, sin is just the most attractive lie out there. And right now, your flesh is drawn to it like a magnet. But we have got to take serious, drastic steps in dealing with that sin, knowing that it will never make good on his promises, and it will always result in death. Every time. A third thing that you have to do in keeping with that is starve your flesh. Starve your flesh. Romans thirteen fourteen says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is preventative maintenance for the extreme measures that we just looked at in Matthew 18. Listen, the more you starve your flesh, the less you struggle with sin. Bottom line, it's that simple. The more you starve your flesh, the less you struggle with sin. Make no provision for your flesh. Don't give it what it wants. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Friend, every time you gratify your flesh's desire, you are feeding an enemy who wants to see you dead. We are at war, church. And every time we brush our teeth, we look into the eyes of our enemy. Seriously, your flesh wants to see you dead. Your flesh and your soul are old friends who have parted ways and are now bitter rivals. On one side, you have the regenerated soul with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. On the other side, you have your corrupted flesh buying into the lies and the deception of sin that again always leads to death. And the two are not friends and they never will be friends again if you are a born-again believer. They hate each other. They are at war with each other. And the war is real. Both are fighting for the believer's loyalty. It is our responsibility to starve the flesh and to make no provision for sin. You wouldn't knowingly invite a murderer into your home. At least I hope not. And yet many of us have swung the doors wide open when it comes to our flesh and letting our flesh have its way with us. If you want to keep from stumbling into sin, pray for protection. Deal with sin and starve the flesh. Fourthly, learn from experience. Learn from experience. Recognize the patterns in your life, the reoccurring obstacles that trip you up from time to time and learn to go around them. And and, and then in addition to that, learn from the experiences of others. You don't have to make the same mistake over and over and over again in order to prevent trouble. Learn from the experiences of others. Go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians. Recently in my own devotional time with the Lord, I have found myself stuck in the book of Numbers. It's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. It definitely picks up pace somewhere after the first four or five chapters. But it's excellent. It's an excellent book. It's even more vivid and more applicable for us today when you understand what Paul writes for us here in 1 Corinthians 10. Speaking of that wilderness generation, look at what he says here in verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, we benefit 
New Testament Christians have much to learn from these Old Testament examples of what not to do. A wise man learns from the experiences of others. And then finally, if you want to keep from stumbling into sin, love God's word. Love God's word. Write this one down. This is so good. Psalm 119, verse 165. Psalm 119, 165. The psalmist says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing, nothing can make them stumble. You want peace? How about great peace? You want, you want to move forward in your walk with the Lord? You want to grow? You want to mature in Christ? How about unstoppable movement down God's path without tripping or falling over, over every danger that you face? The answer is simple. You just love God's word. Delight in God's word. Perhaps the most memorized verse of all of Psalm 119 is verse 105. Your word is what? It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Just because it's familiar doesn't make it any less true. God's word is quick and powerful and sharp. It is able to accomplish what no man can. It shines in the dark and it gives us our bearings and it exposes the traps where most men stumble. That is the first aspect of blamelessness, not falling into sin ourselves. But how do we fulfill this second aspect? In a way, how do we, how do we keep others from falling? How do we not cause others to fall into sin? After all, sin loves company, doesn't it? That was, what was the first thing that Eve did after disobeying God in the garden? She went to find Adam, right? And the rest is history. Sin loves company. The Bible has much to say about not causing others to stumble. But here are just a few. First of all, if we don't want to cause others to stumble, if we don't want to be the reason why they fall, we need to take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. You won't be any good to anybody else if you don't take sin seriously. Let's turn back over to Matthew 18. If you think chopping off hands and gouging out eyeballs was bad, Listen to what the Lord says here. In Matthew 18, just a little bit earlier in the chapter, right before that, look at verse 6. He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, who believe in me, so Christians, if anyone causes one of them who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Jesus says it would be better for you to die a violent and early death than to cause another Christian to sin. That's how serious sin is to God. Too often we don't look at sin quite that dramatically, do we? And yet Jesus goes out of his way to say, no, no, no. It is far better for you to die early, for you to die violently, for it to be bad for you, and probably one of the worst ways that we could humanly imagine It's better for that to happen to you than for you to fall into the hands of an angry God because you caused one of his little ones to stumble. And we say, yeah, yeah, we get it. Sin is bad, but, but. Listen, sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. God hates sin. Jesus went to the cross to deal with your sin. Charles Spurgeon once said, there can be no peace between you and Christ while there is still peace between you and sin. If you don't want to cause others to stumble, you need to first take sin seriously. Secondly, you need to check your liberty. Check your liberty. This truth is addressed directly in a number of places throughout the New Testament. Romans 14, 20 says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, God is at work here. Don't for the sake of something like food destroy that. He goes on to say, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong. It's, it's indeed clean, but it is still wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul isn't talking about offending someone or making a person mad by the things that you eat. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing something that will cause another person to make a sinful decision. And it would be sinful for them because it would be a violation of their conscience. And that matters to God and it matters to Paul. 
Paul makes this extremely clear in 1 Corinthians, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He says, I'm more concerned about my brother's struggle with sin than I care about my liberty. I'll never eat meat again. There's nothing wrong with meat. I love meat. In fact, we go back to the Noahic Covenant. God opens the floodgates, figuratively speaking, and he says, you know what? The floods may not come again, but from now on, eat meat like you would vegetables. And I'm thankful for that. I'm surprised I haven't gotten a few amens. I think we're all thankful for that. Come to the men's retreat and you'll find out what I'm talking about because we're going to have some excellent meat there. And yet Paul says, I will never eat meat again. If that's what I have to do, I care more about what they need than what I want. And that leads well into my next point, that if you don't want to cause others to stumble, you need to take sin seriously, you need to check your liberty, and third, you need to consider others first. Consider others first. The mature believer says, your interests over mine. Back in Philippians, look at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. In other words, if you are looking out for each other, good. That's great. That's wonderful. Now, take it a step further and actually prefer the other person's preferences over your own. That's what he's saying here. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Do what Christ did. Humble yourself and become like a servant. We need to have this attitude towards every believer. And when we do, causing others to stumble becomes a whole lot more difficult. Becomes a lot more difficult. A fourth consideration. If you don't want to cause others to fall into sin, you need to simply live for Christ. Live for Christ. If you go through life living for other people, you're going to lose your mind. So often, I am amazed at how frequently Paul's teaching on on liberty especially, has been misquoted and misunderstood. Since becoming the pastor here, 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 14 have been brought up in casual conversation more times than I ever thought possible. And not always with you folks, just with other people even, other pastors, other other churches, other people in the community. It it just surprises me how popular. I never never quite realized just how popular these passages were, 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 14. And yet, it never ceases to amaze me how many people focus on just pieces of Paul's argument while missing the whole point. It's like we have pet phrases that we want to hold on to, but the point of the passage actually encourages the opposite. For example, 1 Corinthians 10. I can't tell you how many times I've heard 1 Corinthians 10.31 isolated as one verse out of context has come my way as sort of the life verse for Christian liberty. Paul says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's a wonderful verse, powerhouse verse, a mountaintop, a mountain peak passage, right? We love that verse because it is so good. The common takeaway that I often hear is, look, who cares about what others might think, how, how my decisions might affect them? Paul says that I can do whatever I want just so long as I do it for God's glory. And it's their problem. They need to get in line. They need to stop being so legalistic and judgmental and looking at me and, and trying, to, trying to put me down when I'm just trying to have a good time in Christ. So long as I, so long as I do whatever it is that I want to do for God's glory. But in the very next sentence, you don't even have to go very far. The very next sentence, in the same breath, what does Paul say? He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's everybody, folks. Give no offense to everyone, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, is Paul a people pleaser? No. We know that from the text. That's clear. Paul had no problem telling people the truth and laying it out as it is. So what is he saying here? Is he people pleasing? No. Here's why. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, 
that they may be saved. Paul has salvation in mind. He has living for Christ in mind. He has a big picture view for keeping his liberty in check and considering others more important than himself. He doesn't want to offend anyone with his liberties because he knows that the days are evil, the time is short, and living for Christ's glory is more important than getting what he wants. In Christ, we have freedom and liberty, yes, but the mature believer follows Paul's example, and he sets those liberties aside for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of seeing other sinners saved. To deny yourself for someone else's sake Knowing your life belongs to Christ and he is our ultimate example of humility and sacrifice, that's not legalism, friends, that's maturity. And finally, I would encourage you, don't forget to give God credit. Give God credit. It's important for us to realize that not stumbling or causing others to stumble is ultimately a work of God. He is the one who does this work in us. Remember, Paul is praying for the Philippians. He wants God to make them blameless. I I love the benediction found at the end of Jude, where Jude writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is God. He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. And yet we all do it. We all fall from time to time, and we even cause others to stumble too. So what do we do when that happens? Well, it's simple. We confess it, we get up, and we get back on the right path. That's what we do. If we need to make things right with another brother, then we go and we do that, but we keep moving forward. Paul knows the Philippians weren't perfect and that they wouldn't be perfect until they were glorified. Still, he prays for them to remain for them to be pure and blameless, without hypocrisy and without stumbling for the day of Christ. This is one of the better translations out there, by the way, when it comes to this phrase, because that is exactly what the text is literally saying, for the day of Christ. He's saying, I want you to live this way in light of the second coming. The fact that Jesus is coming back, it should have a profound impact on our lives, on the way that we think, on the things that we do. Knowing that Jesus is going to come back, folks, he's going to transform this world. He's going to rule in perfect justice and equity. There will be peace in your life and peace in this land, and Jesus will be king. He will sit on David's throne. That hasn't happened since 586 B.C., he will, sit on Jesus, or he will sit on David's throne and he will rule the world. That's amazing. That's incredible. And that's a reality. That is happening, folks. That is coming to pass. And the fact that he is coming back, it should have a profound impact on today's character, on today's actions and behavior. 1 John 3, 2 says that one day when Christ appears, we shall see him and we shall be like him. But the very next verse says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Now, today, purifies himself as he is pure. If you invite me over to your house, and unfortunately this does happen more often than not, if I spill something on my shirt on the way there, it is natural and right for me to try and find a napkin, maybe some water, and clean that mess up. It would be unnatural It would be weird and wrong for me to make the mess worse, thinking, oh, surely they'll forgive me when I get there. And yet, on a much grander scale, how often do we as Christians, whenever it comes to our part in this great drama, knowing that it is Christ who works through us, and it is Christ who accomplishes his good work and pleasure, but at the same time, we are a part of that, and he has ordained the means as well as the ending, and we are to put in the work. We are to work hard when it comes to our sanctification and, and not stumbling and remaining on this path of sanctification that God has put us on. How often do we as Christians know in our hearts that one day we will stand before Jesus, but we don't care what he thinks? Granted, at that time, your sin will not be brought up against you if you have been truly born again. Jesus paid it all at the cross. But I have to ask, what are you doing now to please your Savior and King? The one who has gone to the cross for you, who has paid your sin, 
who has paid the penalty for your sin to the full, how are you living for him? I'll tell you what he wants. Again, he wants your heart. He wants you to love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then he wants you to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. And wherever your heart goes, the rest of your life follows. So when you live your life, as it is described here in this prayer, without hypocrisy and without stumbling, do it for the day of Christ. Do it knowing that one day you will see your blessed Savior face to face. One day you will be like him. And when you do, you want to be able to stand there as one who is not ashamed. One whose sins are are covered, yes, by the blood of Christ. But knowing that within that covering, you served him to the fullest. You did everything you could to honor and please your king. Do it for the day of Christ. Act with integrity because one day you will see him. The sinless savior who suffered the penalty for your sins face to face. That's the third prayer request found here in Philippians 1. Request number four. Paul prays for the Philippians to achieve good works. Achieve good works. Look at verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, when a person is abounding in love, when they are approving the best and acting with integrity, they are going to achieve good works. It's a given. Notice he says, having been filled. It sounds like this is something that has already happened in the past, but I want to remind you that Paul has just directed our attention to the future and to the judgment seat of Christ there at the end of verse 10. So as he prays verse 11, he's not looking back, he's looking forward. He's saying, I hope that on that day when you stand before Christ, he will find you at that point filled with the fruit of righteousness. All throughout the Bible, fruit is another image, it's another metaphor for obedient thinking and living. It is the product of a life that honors God. And this picture of fruit, it appears all throughout scripture and and when it does, it typically falls into one of six categories. I realize we are limited on time this morning, so we're not gonna go into an in-depth study with each of them, but I'd like to at least provide you a list so you know what they are. Here, 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 Here they are. The first type of spirit-produced fruit is the fruit of attitude. Fruit of attitude. These include the fruit of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5. They are Christ-like attitudes that accompany walking in step with the Spirit. Another type of fruit is the fruit of actions. Fruit of actions. These refer to the righteous deeds that a believer does for God and for others. Colossians 1.10 says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Likewise, Titus 3.8 says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul says, this is more than a good saying. I want you to insist on this. Make sure that you drive this hard into your people's mind. He says, insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But that's not all. Another fruit is the fruit of worship. Fruit of worship. Hebrews 13, 15 speaks of praise as the fruit of lips. Fourthly, we have the fruit of conversion. We see that throughout the New Testament in passages such as Romans 1.13. New converts are referred to as harvested fruit. The fifth category is the fruit of truth. Before coming to the truth, our father was the father of lies. And like him, the truth was not in us. But now that God has given us a new birth, it is as Ephesians 5.9 says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And then finally, the last category for spirit-producing fruit is the fruit of giving. The fruit of giving. In chapter 4 of this letter to the Philippians, Paul will thank them for a generous gift. Now, the Philippians were not rich, okay? They were not a megachurch. They gave sacrificially, and Paul is thankful for the gift that they gave. He goes on in in verse 17 to say, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So there you have it. Six categories of biblical fruit. 
Which one do you think Paul is referring to here in this prayer? Which type of fruit out of the six, as you see them there on the screen behind me? Well, I've already told you what I think because I titled this point Achieve Good Works. So you know where I'm coming from. Paul is praying for the fruit of action, for the fruit of good works to fill their lives. So feel free to circle that one on your sheet because it best fits the immediate context And we also know that it was heavy on Paul's mind and heart as he wrote this. Say, how do you know that, Hans? Well, Paul suffered two Roman imprisonments. He writes Philippians during his first Roman imprisonment. And at that time, he also wrote four prison letters total. Okay, those letters are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So three were penned to churches and one was sent to an individual. Contained within those three prison letters that were sent to the churches, there are four prison prayers. We are looking at one right now. The other three are found in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and Colossians 1. Let's go ahead and flip a page or two over to the right and look at the prayer that is found in Colossians 1. Colossians 1. We won't read the whole thing this morning, but look at what Paul writes here. And notice how similar it is to our prayer in Philippians. Starting in verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, get this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Similar prayers written about the same time by the same man. This desire that preoccupied the apostle's heart should take more than a backseat in ours as well. That said, we still need to be careful when we talk about good works, shouldn't we? We need to remind ourselves that good works are not the, they're not the root, they're the fruit when it comes to salvation. We need to remind ourselves and we need to make sure that we always keep that in the front of our eyes that good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Churches are full of folks who believe they can somehow earn grace, merit, or favor with God by working hard for it. Friend, that's not how it works. It doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or not. Nothing you do will ever earn you more favor, more grace, or more merit with God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You've all heard it over and over and over again. We should all have it memorized by now. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. You had nothing to do with this. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation by grace through faith is God's gift. It is never the result of works. But before anyone throws works out the window entirely, let's not skip over the very next verse that is found there in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, literally his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, in eternity past, God made a list of good things that he now wants you to do now that you're saved. He put a list together And he determined at that time to save you so that you would today walk in them. And notice too that there's this metaphor again, walking in God's plans, moving down his path in obedience without stumbling into sin. So saving faith is the root, but good works are the fruit. Both have been determined by God long before we took our first breath. That's why Paul says in our prayer that the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, apart from me, you can do what? A few things? Something? Maybe? No, he says a big fat zero. He says zero times zero. You can do nothing. You can't do anything apart from me. We can't accomplish anything for Christ unless it is through Christ. He has to energize the work. He has to be the one who moves and flows and works and directs through us in order for us to accomplish anything for him. It's that simple. So what do we do? 
we do what Paul does. We pray. We pray that the right kind of love may abound so that we can approve the best, act with integrity, and achieve good works. And then finally, request number five. Paul prays for the Philippians to abandon all credit. Abandon all credit. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. It's all about God from start to finish. We don't obey him out of loyalty to ourselves and others. Do others benefit when our love abounds? Of course they do. Do we benefit when we obey God's commands without hypocrisy and without stumbling? Of course we do. But the Christian has but one motivation for seeing this prayer answered and fulfilled, and that is the praise and glory of God. In the end, we must abandon all credit, even for the good things that we do, because it is Jesus Christ doing it all through us according to the predetermined plan of God. For our good, yes, we benefit, but not for our sake. It's all for God, all of it, from start to finish. Johann Sebastian Bach once said, quote, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music, only a devilish hubbub, end quote. He would often write at the top of his compositions the letters JJ for Jesus Juva, which means Jesus help me. And at the end of his compositions, he would write SDG, Soli Dea Gloria, which means glory to God alone. Church, I hope this little prayer from prison has found its way into your routine and into your heart. The Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve Paul's prayers for our benefit so we would know how to pray better. We have it in our hands today, and I pray that it would penetrate you to the inner man, to the, to the secretest part of your soul. I pray that it would go deep into each of our hearts and that it would produce much fruit for God's glory. This is a powerhouse prayer. And so church family, I want you to know that it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.